Amen. Thank you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. We're going to be reading from verses 9 through 18. Luke chapter 20. Let me get there. Two. Verses 9 through 18. We are reading in the NASB. Uh, any version generally is okay, but we here read in the NASB. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. Ooh, let me grab some water. It's a bit of a marathon day. John is, uh, our normal praise leader is out of town, and so I'm taking his place. And so, but let us read together. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one they also wounded out, wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, the son, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will become ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we finish off our sermon parable series, next week we're going to be going into Jonah. I'm excited about that. Um, We do so with a parable that I think is very fitting, right, for two reasons. First, this is the last parable that Jesus speaks in the book of Luke, so it's kind of fitting. But more so, in this parable, Jesus draws for us an incredible image it's, it's one of the most captivating and arresting pictures for its beauty, but it's also one that is so grotesque and horrific at the same time. This picture is one that I think just, just is one of the most arresting pictures of the relationship between humanity and God, I think, that we have in Scripture. It's kind of like a Polaroid, and right in this kind of, you know, have you ever done this where you're like trying to like frame a picture? I don't really know what this does, but I've seen people do it, so I'll copy it. Um, this kind of idea where you kind of get this image, this parable is kind of like that, where you get this thing. Or again, on one hand, it's one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see, while on the other, it is horrifying and makes you kind of look away at the same time. So we're just going to get right into it because I think there's a lot to cover. First, the setting that's really important. Verses 1 through 8 is the setting of the parable for a time we didn't read it. But here's what has happened. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, famously weeping over Jerusalem because he knows what is going to happen to him in mere days. He's going to get crucified on a Roman cross. He's entered Jerusalem knowing that this is going to happen. And so the first thing he does, he goes to the temple and then drives out the many people, famously saying, you've made uh, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. You know where he flips the tables, that famous scene. And then after all of this, obviously having gotten the leaders and people in, the, in, in, in Jerusalem very, very upset, he, begins, he continues to teach in the temple. And at this point, right, the, the tension between the Jewish leaders and the desire to kill Jesus, right, like, like that idea is at a fever pitch. 
And so Jesus, one day, while teaching in the temple, after all of this, the leaders, they confront him. I apologize that it's so small. It's the whole context of 1 through 8. I just wanted to highlight it for you, right? The leaders, they confront him, think they rudely interrupt him in the middle of teaching. So he could have been like this, preaching or teaching, and then they literally walk into the temple and they go, wait, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up, Jesus. By what authority are you teaching these things? Who gave you this authority? Essentially, they're saying, how do we trust that you're legit? Show me your credentials. Way back in the day, I'm aging myself, there was a string of commercials done by Motel 6, um, and basically the commercials all went like this. There would be a situation, usually something that required like a doctor or whatever. So the one that I remember is there was a car accident, right, on the side of the road, and then there's a whole bunch of people there, and the person is hurting, and they need help, and like let's say their ankle is broken or whatever, right? And then this random person comes up, right? And like, I think they're like in a bicycle, like suit or whatever, they were like riding a bike along the side. And they come up and be like, oh, you know what? This is like your femur or whatever, whatever, and they do all these things. And then someone goes, oh, are you a doctor? And he goes, no, but I slept at a Motel 6 last night. AKA he made a really smart choice. But the point of the commercial is, unless you have credentials, it doesn't really mean anything. So they're doing this kind of same thing, like, Jesus, where are your credentials? Show me that you can actually say these things. And so Jesus responds with this parable. And let me just put it out there up front. Just when you thought that the tension between the leaders and Jesus couldn't become more intense, it does through this. And Jesus, clearly through the parable, as we'll see, isn't trying to de-escalate or diffuse anything. He's actually stoking the fire. And it's actually quite brilliant what he does. So let's get into the parable straight in, okay? The immediate meaning and practical implication of the parable, I think, are quite clear, right? No one back in those days would have been confused. Even in verse 19 that we didn't read, the leaders know that Jesus is speaking this parable against them, and they get really angry about it. And the reason why this is the case is because the, not only how direct Jesus' message and his words are, but also because everyone would know without a shadow of a doubt the images, the imagery, and therefore would know how to map out this parable. This is what everything means. The owner is God the Father. The vineyard is Israel, because in Isaiah 5 and other Old Testament passages, Israel is referenced to as God's vineyard. So everyone would know. Which means the vine growers or the tenants or the farmers, I'll use those words interchangeably, are the religious leaders that, he, that were just interrupting him, that he's kind of speaking to. And then, of course, the Son is Jesus Christ who is speaking the parable. Now, interestingly, though he could have, Jesus, addressed the parable to the religious leaders that were kind of coming at him, he, it, it tells us in chapter, uh, verse 9 that he's talking to the people in the temple, but the leaders are kind of right there within hearing distance. But he's addressing the people directly. And this is important because he's talking a, kind of a similar but different message to the two groups to the religious leaders, he's basically saying, look, I know how badly you want to kill me and get rid of me. Like, I know. But you got to know, when you do, as a result, you will be destroyed and the vineyard, right, Israel, will be given to others. This is his way of saying, if you do what I think you want to do and that I know you're going to do, then your special status as Israel, as God's people, as God's chosen vineyard, is going to be stripped and it's going to be given to somebody else. And to them, it was unthinkable. It's kind of like, let's say you did something terrible at home and your parents disowned you, but not only did they disown you, they went across the street and then took your friend and they made them their, their daughter or something. You'd be like, what? You know, like, it just doesn't happen. Right? I hope. That's why they go, no, 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 what? No way. That's the reaction. It just was unthinkable that God would do anything like that to the Jews. But the reason why he speaks to the people and not the leaders specifically is because to them, and therefore he's saying to us in many ways, he's saying, be careful now. Don't be like the Lowe's leaders. 
Because anyone who rejects the Son will be rejected by the Son. Like, don't get it twisted. Just because you see these folks doing their thing and you think they're terrible or whatever, don't think that you can't be one of them right quick. You can easily fall into the same trap that they did. It's a very thin line in some ways, I feel like Jesus is saying. Now, while all of that is true, if you've been following with us through the parable series throughout this entire summer, you know that it can't actually be only that. We know that there's got to be some sort of shock, surprise, scandal, something. And this is too easy. It's too clear. It's too straightforward. So you're probably wondering, like, what is actually going on? Well, for that, we've got to take a look a little bit deeper. Here's the parable, kind of in a summary, a deeper summary, right? A man plants a vineyard. This is God choosing Israel to grow Israel up as his chosen nation as the vineyard. And then as many landowners do in those days, they rent it out to vine growers or farmers or tenants. And he goes on a long journey. In Galilee in those days, apparently, historically, this was how a lot of landowners did their thing. This was very common in those days. So everyone would be like, oh yeah, I know that, right? And now because we've seen this in other parables, the agreement when the landowner goes away, excuse me, the tenants would then take care of the farm, right? Grow the crops, and then they would pay whatever the agreed amount was to the vineyard owner. And so the time of harvest comes up and it's time to collect. And though the owner is far away, he sends a slave to go collect the agreed upon payment, okay? Simple, pretty straightforward up until this point. But in a major twist in the story, not only do they refuse to pay, they beat up the servant and send him back (sighs) empty-handed. Now we got a little something. And then we're told two more times this happens, slave goes, time to collect, and the same result. But worse, they kind of escalate as they go, right? They're beaten and treated shamefully, so on and so forth. They're sent back. It makes you wonder, and I think if you're a listener back in this, you're probably like, oh man, those workers, they don't lost their mind. Because this, without any shadow of a doubt, is absolutely breaking the law. It's mutiny on the tenant's part. Not only do they not pay, they also beat up the messengers. They're committing two serious crimes, and they did it three times in a row. But as the readers are listening, or as the listeners are listening, and we as the readers are reading, right, in a bigger twist, the owner does not pursue any legal action at any time, and rather he does the unthinkable. After sending two more servants of the first one, he then sends his own beloved son, hoping that the tenants will respect the son where they did not respect the slaves and finally pay up. But if you're like me, you're probably thinking, wait, 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 this is just stupid, isn't it? There's a saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. AKA, don't repeat your stupid mistakes. Learn from them. Forget, fool me thrice, and then send my beloved son so that you can kill him. Too. Like that, that's not a part of the quote. Like, you don't even get there. It makes you wonder, why would you trust your beloved son to what amounts to a bunch of thugs? Wasn't three assaulted slaves enough evidence for you to realize that these uh, tenants are good for nothing in many ways? Now, of course, we know what happens. The tenants, they see this as, um, as an opportunity to get their inheritance, Right? And they go, ooh, let's kill this son, and then indeed we'll get the inheritance, right? And then the question that we all know that is coming, so what do you think the vineyard owner is going to do to these criminals? And the answer is obvious, destroy them, give the vineyard to somebody else. And so everybody there is on edge. It is intense. This parable does not cut, like, cut, uh, you know, like smooth or anything. It is straight to the chase. 
But before we get into kind of the deeper thinking of things, I think the thing that we have to realize about this parable that we cannot gloss over is this question, what in the world were they thinking for both the tenant and the owner, right? For the tenants, did they actually think they would get away with what they were doing? Like they couldn't be that naive, could they? Because again, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that they were breaking the law and they weren't trying to hide. They were doing it openly. Even before they go off and kill the son, the owner had every right to pursue hard legal action against, uh, by the law, like throwing them in jail and further. But even more, did those tenants actually believe that if they killed the son, they would get the inheritance? Like, like how stupid, dumb, blind are they, right? Like, you got to think, like, what in the world are they doing? There is no provision in any law that this would be the case. Not everyone agrees, but there may have been a provision that if, you know, the, the landowner doesn't have an heir, that they might give it to the tenants. There was something like that. But there was nothing written about you going and killing the son so that you can just kind of mutiny and take it away. There's no provision for that, but yet they believe that this is the way it was going to work. I mean, they'd be lucky to make it out of there alive, let alone with the land. It's just ludicrous thinking. But even more so than that, what was the landowner thinking? Like, what's his deal, right? Maybe you excuse the first, because he didn't know. The second one, maybe. He's just a nice guy. But the third one, that's stupid. But then the son? That's one of my favorite words. That's asinine. That's not a bad word, by the way. That's a legit dictionary word. It's just, like, what is he trying to do? And by the way, this parable isn't trying to tell us that God is irrational or foolish. I hope you know. It is also isn't trying to tell us, as some might have suggested, that God loves us so much, like he's so blind in love with us that he would just go do anything. By the way, that's not what this means. There's a purpose. This is not just blind romanticism. This is something altogether different. So again, we need to ask, what were they thinking and what is Jesus trying to say? And I think he's trying to say three things that are important, and we're going to go over them one by one. First, y'all, we want to be God. The second is listen to the messengers. And then third, the key to love is first to hate. We want to be God. We got to listen to God's messengers. And the key to love is first to hate. Let's just go through these one by one. First, we want to be God. Fundamentally, at the core, the tenant's problem and their issue is simple. They are not satisfied with being a mere tenant. They want to be the owner and they would do anything and everything to get it. And nothing quite says whatever it takes, like killing the son in cold blood, does it? The harsh truth of this parable is that as a tenant, and by the way, that's us, our lives are limited, isn't it? You're not the owner, and so you're a mere worker. You're hired out, which means that no matter what happens in the vineyard, the prophet's, Right? Even if it's a hundredfold, you don't get none of that. You're hired for a wage and you do your wage and then you get your wage and the rest of it goes to the owner. If you've worked a part-time job or like in retail, Starbucks, whatever, if your store goes ham and sells like a whole bunch of stuff and you do all that stuff, do you get any of that? No, you get your ten fifty an hour or whatever you get and that's it. Then you go home. Sorry. The owner of the Starbucks, they get all that money. Right? That's what happens when you're a worker. But even more, not only do you just get what you're paid, 
You have zero control in the end of what is planted, how it's tended, and the way the vineyard is supposed to run. The owner dictates everything. You do as the owner says. Plant this, grow this, and then give me this. This, as a tenant, as a vineyard worker, is your lot in life. And the tenants are showing very clearly, without a shadow of a doubt, that they are not happy about that because they clearly want more. They want to be owners. Which is to say, then Jesus is trying to tell the religious leaders that deep down, they want to be God. But as he's speaking to them, he's speaking to us, and the broader and deeper point is critical. It's why Jesus is talking to the people, and he's saying, we want to be the owner of life. And quite frankly, if we're being really honest, we live our lives most of the time as if we are. Like the parable, we don't listen to messengers, we don't give the owner his due, and we don't even treat. We just disrespect the owner straight up with our actions. Tim Keller, kind of I'm paraphrasing, he says, the nature of the human heart is essentially is to look at what we have as if we are the owners, but not the tenants. We've talked about this in the parable of the steward, right? The shoot steward. What is it that we have in life that we've done all, that we can claim is our own thing? Our gifts, our talents, our privilege, our mind, our bodies, our families, even our biological gender was not determined by me or you or us. And yet, we desire so deeply to use all of these things in the ways that we want, any way we want, and we will go to extraordinary lengths to make sure that we can. That's what we do. So what all the self-help books and the philosophy books and all those things of this day tell us, I mean, actually, in, in truth, of history tell us. Our life, our money, our future, it's ours and only ours. Only we determine what we do with it. A.K.A. you are the owner. Begin to act like it. But Scripture tells us over and over and over again, we've seen this this summer, that that is not right Actually, the opposite is true. You, me, we are all tenants. But our lives are generally spent like little children, toddlers who tell their parents, I can do it, I don't need your help. One of the funniest things about raising kids, all three of them did it, but Connor, my second, he did it the, he did the funniest because he spoke like a caveman. He referenced himself in third person all the time. Connor this, Connor that. And, I, and then when he was like, literally, when he was little, he, would, he told and he went to his mom, my wife, and he goes, Connor do it. Not Oma. Oma is Korean for mommy. Connor do it. Not Oma. Connor do it. And in my mind, I'm thinking like, bro, you can't even speak English, right? And you're telling us what you want to do and that you don't need our help. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But he thought that was the way it was supposed to be. Connor do it. He would also say, Connor cry. That's funny. We love to live under the illusion that we are independent, completely autonomous, but the truth of the matter is we live in total and utter and complete dependence. And if there's any time in our, in our recent history that is showing us that, it's this. Let me just, I mean, some of you are watching me on a screen. The rest of you, y'all are sitting like with stupid blue chairs in between. And they all, all got mad. Like, this is not the way we're supposed to be. But this is how we're doing it because we don't control things. But fundamentally, we cannot and will not accept this fact. And we will spend most of our lives trying to make sure that we don't. We want to be God. And God is telling us that very strongly. So number two, God says, listen to the messengers. The idea and the fundamental fact that we are not owners but tenants in this world is so important 
that God throughout history has sent many, many, many messengers, aka the prophets in the Old Testament, and will continue to send messengers of any kinds to help us to understand this very fact. But just like the tenants in the parable, not only do we not listen, we will sometimes beat them up. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, they literally beat prophets up. But for us, the messengers aren't prophets. You don't have people, or maybe you do, but you don't really have people going around and be like, I'm a prophet, da 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 But our prophets, or our messengers, I think in these times can be some of these. And these, this is not exclusive, by the way. This is not all of them, exhaustive. This is um, not exclusive, exhaustive. This is just a few. They may be our parents. I know some of us are like, hmm. Hopefully our parents are doing a good job, but oftentimes they don't. And so what we like to do is to say, oh, you know what, you're stupid, so whatever, away with you. For some of us, it may be a church, a ministry, a pastor. Again, hopefully they're doing that well too. Or for some of us, it may be a close friend or close friends, those who are entrusted to know us and speak into our lives. But also, and this is the one, these are the messengers we, we love to hate most. It's events, desires, and hopes that are meant to shape us. In particular, our messengers of our day oftentimes can be a near tragedy, an actual tragedy, a frustrating situation or frustrating people, a mistake that you may have made, and then oftentimes a heightened and yet unfilled longing that we all have that we do not get. All of these are messengers that God sends oftentimes, not all the time, to speak to us and get our attention, but we most oftentimes disregard them or even beat them up and send them away. But why do we disregard them is the question, right? Why do we beat them up? And the simple truth is we do so because we don't like the fact that we're not in control of our lives. I mean, when life doesn't go our way, there's lots of failures, struggles, and tragedies. We're living through a time like that. The reason why we're upset fundamentally is because we are being told that we cannot control my life and dictate how it goes. And at the core of that, the message is this. You and I aren't owners, and someone else is, and we simply do not like it. Which means oftentimes, though, we like to say that whenever life is failing and things are going terribly, we like to blame everything on. We say God doesn't exist or God can't be trusted. It's actually, if you think about it, the opposite that is actually true. Because it means that someone bigger than me is in control and that someone just might be God. All it's telling us is that we are not the master and owner. Someone else is. And so God continues to send messengers over and over to tell us. But then the question we got to ask is, what are we doing with or to these messengers? Are we listening to them, paying attention to them, or do we beat them up and send them away? May I suggest that maybe, just maybe, that the people who frustrate you and are difficult to love, maybe the unfortunate circumstances in your life, maybe these are ways that God is telling us that we must admit that we're not in control and that someone else is. And though we don't want to, not only do we have to admit that someone else is, that we should hope that the person who is indeed in control is not just anyone, but it's our God, Yahweh. Listen to the messengers. And then the third and final point. First, hate to love. Now, I hope by now that we've made it clear, or that it's clear to us, that the primary issue of this parable is that we hate not being in control, we hate being tenants, and that we all want to be the owner who is in control of all things, including our lives. 
And if all of this is true, which I think it is, then what it means is that deep down or deeper down, what it says is that we ultimately straight up hate God. Notice that when they send the messengers, they beat him up and they send him back. But what happens when the son comes? They kill him. The only time in history where God makes himself so vulnerable, so reachable, so meetable, he is killed. Now, the interesting thing about all of this is we got to ask, wait, 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 why did this happen? Because as you know, he wasn't just killed by anybody. He was killed by the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests. And as we've seen throughout the parables this summer, the, the religious leaders of the day, their main thing, right? Their main thing was to love God and try hardest to follow him. They're the most religious. They're the most holy. They have a zeal to protect God's reputation. So they do all of these things. But then it's really interesting. Why did those people whose main goal was to serve and protect God and, and, and God's kingdom, why did they kill him? Shouldn't it be the opposite, right? Have you ever thought about that? Like for us generally, right? Generally, hopefully, the people who love you most, they're the ones who are going to protect you. And then the ones who hate you or don't like you, they're the ones most likely to hurt you, right? That's generally true. So why is this opposite? Now here's where things, where, where things get really, really interesting. Now, if you think about the religious leaders of the day, and then also maybe the uber hardcore Christians now, or even more particularly like when I was in high school, um, it's less of a thing now, I think, but it's still a big thing. In Korean churches also, it can be a big thing. If you think about the uber hardcore Christians, ask yourself, for all of those who are this way, what does it get them in the end? Like, what do you get? Are those people, people that are marked by love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, life, joy, and peace? At least in the parables that we've looked at so far, that's ah, not really the case, is it? Actually, what we've looked at and what we've seen is that what it gets them is status, power, money, but along with it, stress, suspicion, grumbling, scheming, and even this case, violence. I've said this many times before, but not for a, a while, but you know the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is power or control, and therefore violence. Simply put, their religiosity, their hardcoreness, in the end was all for them to have control. Even to the degree that it would give them systematic control over the ins and the outs, the who, the haves and the have-nots of the society in their religion. Which is why when Jesus shows up and upsets that system and their control, their anger and hatred toward not having control flares up towards God in the flesh and ultimately they have to get rid of him. It's why for so long, and hopefully not now, but indeed still now it seems, even in the church, sometimes the most cold and difficult and smug people are actually the most religious. Because generally they have a stance where they go, I do this, and I'm like this, and I do this, 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 and this, and this. And you? They stand above and judge people underneath. Because to stand above is to have control, to have power, and to separate from the rest. The cream rises to the top, as they say. But more bluntly, what they're doing is they're simply avoiding Jesus. Because Jesus, as we know, is one who stands under. He lowers, he serves, he gives his life as a ransom for those who don't deserve it. Flannery O'Connor is an author. She wrote a book, and in the book she says, there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. 
Do all the things so that you look great and then you don't have to deal with Jesus at all. And you're like, what? How does that make sense? Well, it does. Because no matter how much sin you avoid, here's the cold, hard facts. No matter how much sin you and I can avoid and we do our 100%, guess what? It's still not Jesus-level perfection. Is it? So we avoid the sin so that we can avoid the judgment. This is why when their religiosity could no longer keep Jesus away, oops, they ended up killing him. That's why Romans 8, 6 and 7 says this, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile, hatred, right, towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. The natural mind, in its sin, is hostile and hates God. Because in the end, we want to be God and we hate that we are not God. So then, what do we do? Right? Not giving me a lot of options, Pete. Yeah, well, here's what we do. You give in to the hate. Now you might be like, wait, 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 wait. I thought hate was bad, right? Like we've been told all our lives we're supposed to love, 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 love. All I need is love. Well, let's look at the parable. Because the scary thing about this parable, right, is that while in the parable we have no doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, we know that the tenants clearly hates the owner, clearly hates his messengers, and also clearly hates the son, right? We know this. There's no, there's no doubting that. We know that their attitude towards these folks was not one of love and anything like that. But in real life, the religious leaders whom the tenants represent, they think they love God. They think they do everything for God. They think that they are protecting God's reputation and they think they're doing God a favor because to them, Jesus was the threat to Israel, the people in God's kingdom. He was the crazy man going around saying crazy things and he therefore needed to be dealt with for the good of God's people. To them, they think that their lives are totally motivated by this fervent zeal and passion to protect and love God and his people so much to the degree that they completely suppress and repress this idea that they hate not being in control and therefore they hate God. And they fooled themselves into thinking that they motivated, they were motivated and did all things out of love. It's why they had no idea that they were killing God in the flesh himself. I mean, even after the parable, they don't wake up and realize that they're about to kill God's own son. They plot even more to kill Jesus. For most of us, whenever we do something terrible, right, to this degree, you know this, right? Even if you have to like, should I do it? Should I not? Should I do it? Should I not? All the parents are in the room are thinking that they should do the thing that they should do and not the thing, you know? But sometimes you do the not smart thing, right? We're all humans, let's just be honest. But as soon as you do it, Generally, we go, oh no, like we know we messed up. We know we didn't do right. Like we can feel it in our bones. But these folks, they have no idea. They're clueless. They're blind. Reminds me of Lazarus in hell, thinking that he can run the world while he's in hell. Or not Lazarus, sorry, the rich man. This is why I'm saying that the first thing we need to do to love is to hate. Remember how I said in the beginning that this parable is like this spectacular image that is one on one hand the most beautiful thing you've ever seen maybe, but also on the other thing like a really grotesque and horrifying thing. 
And the reason is, is because we know this, but let me remind you, the hatred that kills Jesus on the cross is the very thing that kills the hatreds in our mind and our hearts. Scripture tells us that we're enemies of God. And that though we're enemies, God put an end to the hatred in our heart by making Jesus who knew no sin to become sin so that we can be reconciled, reconciled to God through Jesus' blood. That's a very fancy way of saying this. That the point is that we hate God and because we hate God and because we hated Jesus, God had to put Jesus on the cross so that he and we could see, mostly not he, we could see that God's way of dealing with and defeating the hatred was to treat Jesus as the enemies that we are to him. To treat Jesus with the hatred that we have for him. And that through the most vicious portrayal and expression of our hatred that we could think of, killing Jesus on the cross for nothing might finally melt our hearts and make us go, huh, crazy. That's love. You know, I used to wonder how we as people or how someone could see the cross and then not just totally be like melted and moved and, and, and you know, caused to surrender to God. How Easter can come around and we say all these things, Good Friday, and we see this, how we aren't like moved, right? And if we're just being honest, for a lot of us, that's just the way Easter goes, isn't it? We always talk about it, like we have to keep, we have to make Easter new, we got to kind of do these things. Like how do we know that someone died for us and yet just not be utterly changed by it? It's kind of this interesting thing because if someone you knew, like your family member, your sister, your brother, your mom, your dad, even your cousin or your friend, if someone literally took a bullet for you or if someone like got to the hospital and gave up an organ knowing that they would die and they did that for you, your life would be changed by them. The classic example that I like to use kind of in, 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 in uh, TV shows and what is like the mom who's trying to you know, birth a child and then there's complication and then she's faced with the issue, either kill the baby or kill myself. If the baby is born, the mom dies. But if the baby is not born, the mom lives, right? Like that kind of scenario, I know it's a dramatic, but in the movies or in the TV or whatever, all the time, what does the mom do generally? She sacrificed herself for the child and saying, oh, this child has a lot to live, so on and so forth. And we all go, oh. And all of us in our hearts, we go, oh, mom, mom. But that's not a reaction to Jesus, is it? And so I thought, why? And for me, I came up with two kind of reasons why. And I think one, it's kind of obvious, but I think it's because one, the reason why we don't act like that is because we don't think Jesus died for us. Like he didn't need to die for us. Like Jesus didn't need to die to save me. I don't need saving like that. Like I'm good. Like I can run my life. Like I'm, I'm, I'm generally okay. Like I, I don't need that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm good. So I, I eh. Or more likely, I think for most of us, it's probably more something like this, the second one. Is that yes, while we know and we recognize that Jesus saved me, that he loves me, right, that I needed to be saved, I then we look at the cross and we go, but I didn't need it to be saved like that. Like, Jesus, didn't nobody ask you to do that, bro? In Korean, we would say, that's oba. It's just extra, right? Like, yeah, you love me and I need to be saved. I like, but, but the cross is just a bit much. But at the heart of it, what we're saying is that we don't believe in the end that we had much or if anything at all to do with Jesus dying on the cross. We will sing it. We will declare it. There's a hymn that says, it was my sin that put him there on the cross. That it was my hatred 
that put him there on the cross, and yet we don't think that's quite the case. We can't face the fact that that is the case. Like if someone were to come up to you and say that, yeah, you're just a hateful person. You just have hate all in your heart. You'd probably want to punch him in the face. Yeah, I make mistakes, but I don't hate, bro. Right? We don't want to admit it. So when we look at the cross and we see Jesus dying, do I really know that it's my hate that put him there? And the only way to kill this hatred in my heart is to take that hatred like the cup and pour it on Jesus so it kills him. I think that's why it's called the cup. Literally, Jesus consumed the hatred. God's hatred, God's vengeance, God's wrath poured out on Jesus so that we don't have to die, but he does. See, we tend to gloss over this idea that we are God's enemies, that we're called that in Scripture. We read it and we go, eh, whatever. But Jesus calls us his enemies. And I hope you know, you don't just call anybody your enemies. Your enemies are your enemies for a reason. They are your enemies because you either hate them or they hate you or they want to kill you or you want to kill them. Whatever the case, you only call enemies that are worthy of the call. That's why when you don't like someone, what do you call them? You call them a frenemy. They're not quite an enemy. That's harsh. But we are enemies of God. And of course, we as Christians or in church will say, no, no, but God loves you. Yeah, he does, but he hates your sin and he hates the actions that you do and he hates the fact that we're full of sin. And because he does, because he hates the fact that we're this way and that we're consumed by sin, the only way he knows to erase all of that isn't to pretend that isn't there, isn't to think that we're going to get better, isn't that indeed it'll just go away, maybe time will do it. No, no, but it's to erase it. And the only way to erase it and get rid of it forever is to pour that hatred back onto his own son to show us that that is what real love to see the full effect of our hatred front row and center. You see, the reaction to hatred generally for us as human beings is what? More hatred. It's vengeance. It's violence. It's revenge. But to take that hatred, though you don't deserve it, and to take it upon yourself and let the hatred do its full effect, a.k.a. kill you because it's so terrible, that's love, God says. Crazy, but love. But our problem is that we don't think we hate God. That we don't think we hate be not being in control and therefore hate the God who is in control. That's why Tim Keller says, Christians are people who know that we hate God but also know that God has slain the enmity through the cross. My professor Daryl Johnson from school, he says, we will not love until we first face the fact that we hate. Because only when we do, then we will realize the true depth of God's love for us. That yeah, he is kind of crazy. Yeah, he keeps sending his messengers. They keep beating him up. Yeah, we keep doing that. And then he would say, maybe, just maybe, they will respect my son and push it to the limit and realize that we will do the very thing that our hatred demands, which is to kill him. And he'll say, that is a thing that's going to kill the hatred. 
That's why if you've ever gone through something really difficult and you've talked to me, I'll always say forgiveness will only happen when you fully give into your hurt and your pain and the hatred you have for the person who caused you that pain and hurt. Why? It's because when you do and you let that hatred actually take its effect, you may realize that that's how much you hate God and yet he loved you the way that he did. Then you'll decide to forgive because God forgave you. Now you might say, well, but, but, but Pete, how do I trust God and actually give him the control? That's so hard. And this is where we finish. And the praise team can come up and we can get ready to, um, to sing us out. But let me just put it like this. I hope it is clear at this point now that no matter what, that you and I will admit that we don't have control over life. Life, no matter how, much, how hard you try, will tell you that you don't have control. It'll remind you over and over and over and over and over again that you do not have control. And in particular, at the most inconvenient times that you don't have control, right? But if that's true, then what it also means is that someone else is in control, right? Someone other than me is in control, and if that's the case, then the question we must ask ourselves is, who then do we want to be in control of life? And to whose hands do we entrust that? And the question that I want to ask you is, why not entrust it into the hands of a person like Jesus and God, who though, after sending messenger and messenger and messenger, almost to the point we think he's stupid and idiotic, would continue to send his son even that to him, he hates the hatred in our hearts so bad that he would take it upon himself to erase it forever. How could it be dangerous to entrust someone like that? Hmm? How dangerous can it be to give up our control to someone like that? Who better than that? Fundamentally, Christianity, this faith, following Jesus, right? Hating, giving up all, carrying our cross, we've talked about all this stuff. Fundamentally, it's about surrender. Are you going to follow God no matter what it takes? Or will you follow you or something else? Will you live life God's way, come what may? Or will you do it your way or someone else's way? But more so, my challenge to us is this. The longer you're in church, the more we think that we're great. The longer you serve, you're a Bible study teacher, you're on praise team, you lead this, student leadership, whatever, and you think that we're great. And then when someone pokes at you and goes, you're actually not so great underneath all that, what do we do? We go, <sighs> but Jesus tells us the first beatitude, a mark of the kingdom breaking into our lives is what? poverty in spirit. I have nothing for this kingdom. And so will you then surrender and admit? Because that's the only way you get Jesus. Because if not, you'll make excuses. You won't accept the invitation. Or worse, when he comes to you, you'll kill him, throw him out of the city and say, I'm done. So church, friends, 
brothers and sisters, what are the messengers that God is sending to you? What are you doing with these messengers? And what are you doing with the hatred that lies deep within towards the God who has control because you so bad, so badly want it? And will you surrender it all to him? For there is no one else like him to entrust your life into. That is what it means to follow. And interestingly, next week we'll find a Jonah, a prophet, who refuses to do as God says, to follow him. So we take some time and pray. We take some time and think about this, your life. Jesus put it right out there. Quite clearly, it seems to me. And will you then decide to respond? Are you okay that God is God and that you are not? And therefore you say, God, because I'm not, I will follow you. Deny myself, pick up my cross, and then follow you. I pray that that would be indeed the case. So we take some time to pray, and then we'll pray for the offering, and, and then we'll sing just as a way of response.